So we were here last night and had a great time. And uh, I confess I am not firing on all cylinders this morning. Yeah. Yeah, Christmas Eve for our family has always been kind of the highlight, sort of bigger than Christmas Day. So we were up last night celebrating, and I didn't sleep last night well, and so I am dragging. But, but I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled you are too. You know, there was a survey done about Christmas services today, 1,000 pastors and churches, and about 20% of evangelical churches were not meeting today because it was Christmas Day. Now, I totally get, and I'm sympathetic with them, so I'm not throwing stones, okay? But I'm thrilled, tired, and not firing on all cylinders as I am to be here this morning, and I'm thrilled you're here this morning too. I just think how particularly appropriate for brothers and sisters in Christ who share the same faith and are in the family of God to be celebrating the Savior's arrival together, right? And then we're going to leave here and we'll hang out with family and friends too so we get the best of both worlds. Hey, we're going to focus, as the intro video suggested, on Jesus as King this morning. Last week we looked at Jesus as Savior, but this morning the focus is really going to be on Jesus' arrival as King. And this is a little hard, frankly, I think, uh, for we who inhabit a democratic republic that was founded on the rejection of an earthly king. And we're talking about as Christians hailing, uh, frankly, what we can call, we'll refer to this later, the once and future king, the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords. That was, that's what we're talking about this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start and we'll hang out a little bit in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you use the Pew Bible, this is uh, page 807. Matthew 2 is probably the second best known or remembered Christmas story. Luke's account probably better known. Uh, but Matthew 2 talks about Jesus coming, being perceived as the arrival of a king. And that's where we're going to park now. So if you've got your Bible, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the ESV. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And by the way, in ancient times, kings were often compared to shepherds. They were the shepherd over their nation. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You guys know, this is a well-known story, the whole thing with the three wise men who come from the east to visit Jesus. So you've got the songs, We Three Kings, you've got Christmas pageants, you've got Christmas cards, always the same thing. I mean, it's a rich theme. But this is an odd story. Who are these guys, and why are these Gentiles coming to bow down to a Jewish king? So first, we're going to develop this theme, just who these guys are and why they're there. We say wise men. If you read from the NASB, it says magi. And that's just the NASB transliterating the word magos. So we get the term magic or magicians from that term magi. It's plural. We know there's more than one. If we think of magicians, we're probably missing the mark. That, that term could refer to someone who tried to practice supernatural or magical arts, but it was also used simply of wise men, of people who study typically in the courts of kings. These could have been astrologers on one hand, but also astronomers, but they were learned academic men of one stripe or another. That's who's coming to see Jesus. We know they're, they're well instructed, they're academics, they know things many other people didn't know. If we say how many of them were there, you know, three is the popular number because there's three gifts, but the text doesn't say how many there were, and we don't know. Maybe three, maybe four, maybe more, maybe two. Hard to say. We don't know. It also says they come from the east, and I think this is significant. We're actually not told the country that they came from, and I'll try and point that up later why I think that's significant, but they're from the east. This could be Arabia, northern Arabia, but probably and more likely that means these guys probably came from the area of Babylon or Persia. Remember, Rome rules the world at this point, but the ancient areas of Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire were still there and occupied as they always had been. And if these guys came from the Babylonian area, as I assume they did, then they would have had access to the Jews and to Jewish literature. And in those days, kings and those in the courts of kings made it their business to know what other nations taught and believed, not just mathematically or science, but religiously as well. And if you remember 600 BC, just about then, when the Jews were taken captive to Babylonia, Jews inhabited Babylon from that point forward, guys, until recent history. Jews were in that area from the, the deportation around 600 B.C. through the past two millennia until recent times. So if these guys were from that area, they would have had access to Jewish literature. They would have known what the Jewish scriptures taught. And we know that at least in part they knew something from the Jewish scriptures because they're coming in reference to a star that comes from the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers 24. This is a key text related to a messianic promise that these guys obviously knew about. The context there in, in Numbers 24, Israel was, this was part of the Exodus, and they're ready to come in into the land of promise, but they've got to pass through the area east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, and they're facing opposition from the kings of the land there. 
And King Balak, king of Moab, had hired a well-known prophet to come and to look down on Israel and to curse them. But what happened was each time Balaam came to curse, God by the Spirit took over his words and he blessed Israel instead. And in Numbers 24, Balaam, looking out over Israel, said this, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. This is around 1400 B.C. when this was given. A star will come from Jacob. A star is going to come out of Israel. And a scepter, the symbol of kings, a scepter will arise from Israel. If you skip down to verse 19, one who comes from Jacob will rule. These wise men from the east understood from this text that a star would come out of the land of Israel and would signify that a king was coming to rule. If you look earlier there in Numbers 24 and verses 1 through 9, you also see things along this line. The king that comes is going to be higher than the kings of the region. It mentions specifically Agag, the ruler of Amalek. But it also says this, Israel and its king will have the strength of a wild ox. They'll destroy their adversaries. And key among the description there, language straight out of Genesis 12, it says this, those who bless Israel and Israel's king will be blessed, and those who curse Israel and Israel's king will be cursed. That's language straight out of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. These wise men knew that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had said that the ones who came and honored his nation and his king would be blessed. And friends, it appears that these were not just wise men, that they were not just educated, but that they were, in fact, men of faith. Remember that they've traveled some unknown distance to come and bow down, as we'll talk about here in just a minute, before a Jewish king. Why would they do that if they didn't believe the words of the Jewish scriptures? And I get excited about this. Uh, Matthew's gospel, most people know it's written for Jews, right? It quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel accounts because it shows to the Jews that this is your promised Messiah. But second and equally important, Matthew's gospel was to say that Jesus was coming not only as a savior for the Jews, but a savior and a king for the nations, for the Gentiles. And that's why in Matthew genealogy, it's Matthew that includes in his genealogy the Gentiles in Jesus' line, women like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. These were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Matthew's gospel starts by showing that Jesus' line includes Gentiles. Do you remember how Matthew's gospel ends? By Jesus sending the apostles to make disciples of all the nations. And here you have in Matthew's gospel, Gentiles. And they're not, it doesn't say the nation they're, they're coming from. And I think that's intentional. I think God means us to see in these Gentiles, all the Gentiles of the nations who would come and bow down and would own Israel's Savior and King as their Savior and King as well. And that the Magi were meant to encourage Gentiles like you and me today to see in the Jewish Savior and King, our Savior and King as well. 
Their nation of origin isn't listed, and I take from that that they represent all of us. So these guys traveled a long way, and we don't know how long after Jesus' birth. <clears throat> these guys did not come to the manger. So how long after Jesus' birth did these guys show up? We don't know, and the text doesn't say. It could be as much as two years. And we say this because when Herod required the execution of the would-be kings in the area of Bethlehem, he said, kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who are two years old and under. So could have been up to two years. Whatever the case, Jesus and his family are not in the manger anymore. They're in a house, and that's what the text says. They're in a home. Now, Joseph and Mary are not wealthy, right? They're, they're not going to be in a palace. They're still down there in Bethlehem, and no doubt they're dwelling is a humble setting. And yet when these guys arrive coming into this humble dwelling fit for a carpenter and his family, they are not put off at all by the setting. And they come into this little Jewish boy in a humble Jewish setting, and they present to him these costly gifts fit for a king of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh, you can buy these things today, but back in the day, these were very valuable commodities. They were also used in the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem for the offerings and the incense. So these were definitely gifts worthy of a king. And it says they worshipped him. And think of this for just a minute. When you see that term in the Old and New Testament, typically it means they bowed down. We might say we worship when we sing, but really the, the bigger and the key thought throughout the scriptures is that we bow down before someone else that we're acknowledging as our superior. So here you've got these guys, these adult men, they're probably older, and they're well-to-do socially. You know, they would be among the elite in the country they came from. They wouldn't be traveling here. They wouldn't have the knowledge they did otherwise. And they come into a humble Jewish home, and they bow on the floor to a little Jewish boy because they say... And they know this isn't merely a little boy. This is the king and the savior that God promised to the Jewish nation and to the Gentiles. And we acknowledge him and we bless him. These were believers. Several years ago, our family took a trip, spent almost three weeks in England. It was kind of a, a dream trip for us. We thought about it for a long time and the occasion was our daughter was graduating from Durham University, and so that's where we started our trip. We went up to Durham, and we stayed in this thousand-year-old castle across from a thousand-year-old uh, cathedral. Um, kind of rustic, old. A thousand years will do that for you, won't it? Uh, kind of rustic on one hand. Uh, not the richest place to stay, for sure. Uh, but... This, this hall, this is a picture of the great hall in Durham Castle, and that's where we had our breakfast every morning. And, you know, they set the breakfast for the tourists like us, right? Ridiculous. They had pastries, eggs, bacon, sausage, beans. How, how beans get in there for breakfast, I don't know, but they're there, tomatoes. They had anything you could imagine. Lavish feast every morning. So we, of course, went down and took advantage of that every morning we went down. About the second morning we were there, and we were there several days, uh, a group of older men started joining us. And they didn't come because Mike was there, my lovely wife and lovely daughters were there. And so they were coming out, hanging out with my lovely young ladies. And as we 
got to talking, we found out why they were there at Durham Castle. They were all academics. They were all professors at colleges and universities around England, and they were there for a conference. And the conference was to study the legends of King Arthur. And let me, let me run through this with you, just a couple of things. I'm just picking some highlights. If you read legends of King Arthur, uh, there, there's few persons in history, and is Arthur real? Was he real or not? My suspicion is there was a real King Arthur, but the legend, of course, becomes bigger than the kernel of truth, whatever that was. He existed probably in the 5th or 6th century, but, you know, we've got artwork. There's few people or legends that have engendered more art, more movies, more books, more stories than that of King Arthur. So you may hear some story elements from other sources that I'm not referring to this morning, but I want to give you a hit list that I'm picking out, maybe cherry-picking, that, that go along the line of the legend of King Arthur. And just listen to some of the elements of his story. His birth was the result of extraordinary, if not supernatural, means. If you're, and I'm not going to explain all the story elements, but I'm just going to point them out. If you're aware of the story, you'll know what I'm talking about. He was raised outside the halls of power and not by his own father, but by a surrogate. He was easily overlooked, marginalized, and despised as he came onto the scene, in his case, because of his youth. Initially, it was only by a few that he was known and recognized for who and what he truly was, which was the king, the son of the high king, King Uther Pendragon. He was validated king by doing what no one else could do, had done, or would do after him, which was in his case, to pull a sword from a stone. For a short time, he ushered in a golden age of peace after putting down his adversaries, and he was promised to return in the future to save Britain in its darkest hours. In fact, one of the stories, one of the fictional accounts of his life is called The Once and Future King. Now, if I just told you the elements of that story, I would forgive you if you thought I was talking about Jesus. Because those are the same point by point. You'd say, if you didn't know it was King Arthur, it sure sounds a lot like Jesus. Broadly, the same elements of that life. And this theme of a king, guys, there's, there's no accident. The theme of a king comes up throughout history along these same lines. So if you just think of contemporary literature, and I know from many of your families, think of this. Uh, Aslan the King, the Lion King in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, you this mythic figure that dies and comes back. If you think of Aragorn, son of Arathorn in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring trilogy, it's this understated, despised guy who is actually in the line of the great kings whose destiny it is to return and to redeem his people and to set up his kingdom. It, it's not limited to that. It goes back further than that, too. On one hand, our sinful natures long for autonomy. We want to call life according to our desires, our whims, the way we want it. The flip side, though, is because we recognize that the world is much bigger than ourselves, simultaneously we would also love if someone would come in bigger, wiser, stronger than ourselves and set the world in order, set the world right around us so that we could live the kind of lives we desire. In fact, guys, I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons 
why we put undue pressure sometimes or expectations on politicians, that we're just so hoping someone comes in with the authority and the wisdom to put the world right around us so we can get on with life as we see fit. But there's this hope in the human heart for a king. We long for personal autonomy on one hand, but we want someone big and strong enough and wise enough on the other to make the world right around us. Muslims today are waiting for a savior also, the Mahdi. One of the Muslim sects is waiting for the Mahdi in the form of what they call the 12th Iman. Some in Britain today are still waiting for King Arthur. And if you go back in history, what you'll find is this. Most ancient cultures had a story that said a son of promise would come, would be slain, would die, and would rise again to rule. And I don't think there's any accident behind this. Not only does the human heart, on one hand, sinfully want things our own way, but we also want someone to come and make the world right. And once you get into Genesis, you start seeing these promises God gives specifically that I'm going to do just that. So from that first promise of a Savior, who's also going to be a king in Genesis 3.15, but also, do you remember Noah's father at Noah's birth? He says, we hope this one is the one who will give us rest, Genesis 5. From the earliest days, God had said, I'm going to send someone and he is going to be that king who will reorder your world. We know him today as Jesus, but guys, back in the day, who would he be? When would he come? We didn't know. But almost every major ancient civilization had this expectation that one will come. He'll be supernatural. He'll be a son of promise, and he's going to come back. He's going to come back to rule and reign. And, of course, you get quite specific once you get to Abraham and the promises that follow. I'm going to read these. I don't think you'll have time to look these up. In Genesis 49, on Jacob's deathbed, he prophesies by way of blessing over each of his sons and their tribes and the descendants that would follow. And he says of Judah, the scepter, that's the image or the symbol of kingship, shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The people will obey the king who comes from the line of Judah. But also you get down to David in 2 Samuel 7. Do you remember, and I love this story because David says, man, Lord, I'm living in this nice palace and you're out there in a tent. I'd love to build you a temple. And initially the prophet says, yeah, go ahead. Great idea. But God comes back and says, not quite. He says, David, this is what I'll do. I'm going to build you a household. And this is what I'm going to do. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you. So the king will be the descendant of David who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When Solomon comes on the scene, he builds a temple, and his is a golden reign for sure, but his kingdom didn't last forever. In fact, it fell apart when his son took the throne immediately after him. Solomon's a picture of the Savior who would come, but he was not the king God promised, a kingdom that would never end. If you go down to Isaiah chapter 9, one of the best known of the Messianic promises from the Old Testament, Isaiah said, for to us a child is born. Think of the one the wise men came and saw. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He has the wisdom 
to lead. Mighty God, He's powerful and He's God. Everlasting Father. Father here doesn't mean, by the way, God of God the Father. It, it, it means the paternal influence over the nation. Prince of peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the kingdom that doesn't end. And then just before the Old Testament period was winding down, not long before Malachi, in Zechariah, this is profound. Zechariah is a great book, by the way, just because of the prophetic passages it talks about, very vivid, related to the second coming, Jesus returning to the earth as king. But Zechariah 14.9 says this, the Lord, and when it says Lord in your Bible, it's probably all caps, that means this is transliterating Yahweh. Yahweh will be king over all the earth. Everyone shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. The king that comes is God himself, just as Isaiah said he would be, the second person of the Trinity. So God said that the king to come would be Yahweh himself, God would be Savior King, born of the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. And those wise men from the east recognized that the King God promised had come to earth, even though they did not see Him in His glory, which is all the more interesting, isn't it? That they recognized in Jesus' humility that He was still the King. Zechariah 9.9 is the text well known. When Jesus rides in the week of his crucifixion, he rides in humble and seated on a little donkey. And that's kind of the image that the wise men saw him in, in his humility. But his humility, that first coming in the incarnation, does not diminish the regal nature of who and what, what he was. It only enhances it because he is both Savior and King. The wise men saw and acknowledged in Jesus what everyone will eventually see and acknowledge. He is king over all kings and Lord over every Lord. I want to read from Revelation 19. Uh, the once and future king, not Arthur, but the Lord Jesus, is going to come again. And when Christians pray, thy kingdom come, or Lord, your kingdom come, I hope this is what we're thinking or what we're seeing in our mind's eye. That, that it's not some illusory, uh, vague notion of things in the future, that something happens and it's a nice thing, but that it is, in fact, the return of King Jesus in his glory as the powerful ruler from Revelation 19, from this passage, that we are, in fact, praying for and anticipating. Revelation 19.11 John recorded, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a little donkey. This is a war horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, king over every king. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Think of John's Gospel, chapter 1. The armies of heaven 
arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. What you have here is an army from heaven led by its king coming from heaven down to earth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, the nations that have not bowed and do not recognize him as king. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And if you know the rest of Revelation, you know that Jesus returns at a time of great warfare and rejection of him. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What we don't want to do at the Christmas season is to mistake baby Jesus for less than the king over every king, your king and your God. And like the wise men from the east, we want to hail him as our own. If you've never come to acknowledge the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, Christmas Day would be a great day to do that. The day we remember him in his incarnation, he came to save us from our sin. And guys, he's willing to do that for anyone. And all we do is recognize that we're deficient. We're not who and what God called us to be. And he paid the penalty for our sins as Savior. And we simply receive that gift of salvation, freely extended to us, freely received. Having done that, we then own him as our sovereign, as our liege, as our Lord, as our King. And we offer him as the wise men did, as we bow before him, at least in spirit and in heart, if not physically, we bow before him because we recognize it is he that has the right to rule over our lives and not our lives only, but over this world. So that when we pray, your kingdom come, we are saying with John and with the apostles and with the early church, come Lord Jesus, rule and reign over us. You, the one that came to save us, would you come again in your glory? We receive you, we acknowledge you, we own you as both Savior and and as Lord and King. And Father, with heaven, we would just choose to bow before you this morning and acknowledge your choice of king. Gentiles and your own people, Lord, denied Jesus, his role as Savior and King. But to as many as believed in him, even to those who believed on his name, he gave the right, the power to become children of God. Lord, we do that this morning. We own heaven's king as our king. We own heaven's savior as our savior. Lord, we bow before you. We acknowledge you. We thank you for being who and what we are. you are. We thank you for your incarnation, for your death on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we thank you. And with expectation, we look forward to your return from heaven when you make the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>